Father, we thank you that that great truth is not just something that comes off of our lips, but fills our heart. We are so grateful that you're our God. We're grateful for your greatness. We're thankful for your love for us. As we've sung tonight, how unfailingly faithful you have been to us. Thank you, Lord, for our Savior tonight, His overwhelming of our past, our present, and our entire future in a glorious, glorious way. We thank You for how rich You have made us in Him, and we pray that tonight You would speak to us from Your throne, through Your Word, by Your Holy Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. The book of Amos, chapter 7, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we come to Amos chapter 7. Chapter 7 through 9, which constitutes the remainder of the book, consists of uh, five visions given uh, to Amos by God concerning what has been the theme of the book for the most part from uh, chapter 3 on, and that is the judgment that God is going to visit upon the northern kingdom of Israel for their sin. And so these series of visions, uh, visions are a means by, one of the legitimate means by which God does communicate uh, to His people. And uh, He gives uh, uh, Amos these series of, of visions that have a prophetic uh, element to them. Begin in verse 1, and the Lord says, Thus says, Amos speaks for him, Thus says the Lord, uh, thus the Lord showed me, behold, he formed locust swarms at the beginning of the late crop. Indeed, it was uh, the late crop after the king's uh, mowings. And so it was when they had finished eating the grass of the land uh, that I said. And so here is a vision of not likening the Assyrian uh, uh, military which will ultimately conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, not likening them to locusts, but here is a vision of the actual threat of a locust plague that uh, God was intending to bring upon the northern kingdom in order to humble them and bring them back uh, to Him. When it talks here about the, uh, the locusts coming in on the late crop, after the king's mowings there in Israel, when, when they would uh, harvest the grain, uh, they would do it early, early in the spring, and that first harvest would then go to the king for the use of feeding his livestock and so forth. And then a second uh, crop would grow out of those cuttings, or another crop entirely would be planted and talking about the, the devastation of that plant. It, it would be the last chance to grow food uh, really in the year. And, uh, and in an agrarian society as it was so dependent, not upon uh, irrigation or the kind of things that we enjoy today, uh, completely dependent upon this, uh, the, these crops in order to eat, and uh, anything uh, that was destroyed after the latter rains would be uh, wiped out. It would destroy the entire food supply uh, of, uh, of the nation. And so uh, this he is, uh, is the vision that Amos sees, and he sees the implications of it immediately. And he cried out to the Lord, and he said, O oh Lord God, forgive, I pray, Oh, and talking about Israel. And he says, Oh, that Jacob may stand. And he refers to Israel as Jacob. Remember when Is Jacob's name was changed to Israel? Jacob means uh, con man or heel catcher or someone who always comes out on top in whatever deal he's in the middle of. And, uh, and God changed his name to Israel, which means governed by God. And uh, here, is, uh, here is Amos saying, You know, even in, I'm going to intercede for them related to this uh, vision of this plague that, will uh, that you're considering related to them, and I can't even get myself to call them Israel. They are Jacob through and through, but despite the fact that they are Jacob, uh, would you uh, forgive them? Oh, that Jacob may stand, for he is small. And he saw the implications of the destruction of a, 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 an annual grain crop that it would uh, wipe out the nation. And so he was concerned for the future of the nation. And he, 
and he looks at, talks about the northern kingdom of Israel as being small. Remember, their economy is going very, very well. They've had a couple of minor military uh, uh, successes. And so they're kind of full of themselves. And sometimes it takes an outsider. Remember, Amos came to prophesy to the northern kingdom of Israel from down in Judah, the southern part. Uh, of, uh, of, of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, and he comes up and he sees it clearly for what it is. He sees how vulnerable they are, and an outsider could come in and see it. And so he beseeches God in prayer, you know, kind of like uh, they don't deserve it, just like California doesn't deserve any rain. But uh, would you uh, please look out for them because they're on the brink of, of disaster here. And it's a, a beautiful prayer of intercession. I don't, I'm sure all of us have people like this that are on our prayer list, whether it's our children or our grandchildren or parents or friends or whoever it might be, where they're living a life that is one that is really uh, God can't uh, bless at all. And, uh, and so you cry out and you know that it's a disaster. This is... They deserve your judgment, Lord, and I'm not telling you what to do in their life, but would you bring them to you and would you uh, be gracious to them in the meantime and uh, protect them as much as, as you can without hindering their wake-up call and, and turning back to you. And of course, the Lord only knows what that line is in our loved ones. And so, really, His heart is so... Uh, gentle. It does remind us of the fact that his messages here in, in the book of Amos have been very, very strong. And they're going to conclude very, very strong in these remaining chapters. But he, he knew God's heart was not to destroy the people in terms of this destruction that would come through Assyria, but that they would come to repentance. So he's not like this angry guy that's out there and he hates these people and what they're doing and, and, and to God's reputation and all of these things. There's a part of him that is, is in that category, but his, his heart is for, uh, for their repentance, for their turning. And, uh, and, and so his intercession. You don't pray for people you don't care about. And uh, especially when the chastening they deserve is coming, and it's long been coming. So it says something beautiful about Amos. I forget who, who um, what famous evangelist it was. I don't think it was Moody. Um, might have been Moody, D.L. Moody, but uh, they talked about, he would say some very, very strong uh, things, but there was always a tear in his voice. And, and there's an aspect of Amos in this. And so the Lord heeded the prayer, uh, verse 3. He relented of this, uh, this chastening that He was going to bring on the northern kingdom. He did so as a result of the prayer, and He, and he concluded it by saying, it shall not be. And so then uh, comes the next uh, vision. Thus the Lord showed me, behold, uh, the Lord God called for conflict by fire, and it consumed uh, the great deep and devoured the territory. And so the vision of a consuming fire, a fire of God's judgment coming upon the northern kingdom that would be so great that, that um, uh, as, as Amos sees it in his vision, uh, that Israel could take all of the water supplies and its subterranean water supplies in an attempt to extinguish it, and they wouldn't be able uh, to, uh, to extinguish it. And then he intercedes again, and uh, then I said, O Lord God, cease, I pray, O that Jacob may stand, for he uh, is small. And so the Lord relented concerning this, this also shall not be, says the Lord. And as the Lord relents of these two judgments, there's probably a lot of things that are happening uh, in this scene. But one of the things, and very important things, that it communicates to us here is that God is not willing that anyone should perish, but that all would come to repentance. So God is giving them a space to repent. And the Bible talks about the backslider. He talks about the person that's walked away from God. And He gives that person a space to repent. It's not an, a, a, an endless amount of time, but He'll pull back on the judgment that they deserve and He could mete out upon them in a moment and nobody could accuse them of being unfair. 
but he gives more and more and more room so that when he finally it is required for him to lower the boom of his chastening in a strong way in that person's life. Nobody can look at it and say uh, that that was uh, that judgment of God was um, uh, uh, unmeasured. Uh, that it was just kind of an explosive emotional kind of decision on the part uh, of God. God is maintaining, obviously, control in all the way through it. And thus we know when He uh, uh, lays out His chastening upon someone's life, even our own lives individually, whatever that may look like, if we're you know, playing funny games with God in our relationship uh, with God, that by the time that happens in a person's life, that God has given ample grace and ample room to repent before He ever did it. Now, any of us that have walked with the Lord for any length of time, we can know by the time the Lord kind of busts our chops over something that uh, we're not taking Him seriously about in our life, we're playing games with this sin, we're playing games with Him. We all know that by the time He does that and He lowers the boom on us, that when we look back, we realize He had been talking to us for so long about that issue. This was something that he had given us ample space to repent concerning and, and then came in and gave us a good spanking related to it. And so that's a part of, of what's happening. His, his, uh, his judgments and his chastening are never arbitrary and, and they're, uh, they're always uh, measured and always sanctified and, and well thought out. And then he sees another vision, the vision of the plumb line in verse 7. Behold, the Lord showed uh, the whole Lord stood on a wall uh, made with a plumb line, uh, with a plumb line in his hand. And so, uh, a plumb line is, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, is just uh, in, in its kind of crudest um, uh, form, is you just take a string and you put something heavy. It can be uh, a nut or a bolt or a whatever it might be on the end of it. And then it holds the string down and you can put it up against something, a fence post, a telephone pole, like I used to do. When I work for the phone company, that is straight. Based upon the plumb line, go ahead and let's pack the dirt in and, uh, and, and leave it in its uh, place just as it is. And so a plumb line lets you know that something is uh, up, upright. Our word upright comes from two German words. One of them means up and the other means right. It means not only is something straight, uh, but it's, it, it, it is uh, right in being straight. And so, God's got this plumb line, and uh, the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. And then the Lord said, behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. So God takes the plumb line, and the plumb line is the Word of God. Uh, and he takes that plumb line and he puts it up against what that nation had become. And we've been seeing this in recent chapters. They're so far away from what God called them to in the Law of Moses. And he puts that plumb line up. And, he does, and the plumb line, the Word of God, exposes them not to only be in, um, uh, crooked, but, but also to be in danger of collapsing. And, and that's one of the things you can do. You put a plumb line up against one thing, and you say, well, you know, it's off a little bit. And then you put it up against something else, and you go, get out of that building! <laughs> it's going to go out. That wall's going to collapse any minute. Get away from it. Uh, because it is, it is so far away from what it needs to be uh, that the only thing that can be done to it now is to tear it down. And that's what God is saying about the northern kingdom of Israel. There is no, at this point, there is no redeeming them. There is no fixing this uh, foundation. They have moved so far away that I'm going to have to tear the whole thing down and start over again. Talking about what he would do in the, the judgment of the Assyrians who would take the nation uh, into uh, cap captivity. And then he describes the the devastation that will come upon them, the judgment in the form of the Assyrians. The high places of Isaac uh, shall be uh, 
uh, desolate in, in all of these uh, places, these idol temples that were around through the land. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And so, talking about um, uh, the, uh, the, the calf worship that was going on in Dan, also in Bethel as a part of their idolatry, God says, I'm going to come in and I'm going to wipe out the sanctuaries uh, in this. I'm going to, I'm going to uproot the idolatry. And, uh, and by uprooting the idolatry and devastating the sanctuaries in the high places, it would be a way of God communicating that these gods you're following are a folly. They're a folly. They can't even protect themselves, much less protect you against me when you do to me what you've done to me and you force me to chasten you. One of the worst things a child can ever do to a parent, certainly to a father, but to any parent, is to live a life that doesn't allow that parent to bless that child in the way that they want to. And then to go even further to force that parent to now chase them in a severe manner in a way that no parent given a choice would ever want to do. And, and it's important to remember, in this relationship between God and, and the nation of Israel and the northern kingdom of Israel, there's two people involved in that relationship. There's two people involved in the relationship that we have with God. God is involved in that relationship. And He wanted to bless them. He wanted to pour out all of the blessings of the, the Mosaic Covenant upon them, and, and they denied it uh, from Him. And, and so, how does He cure them from their idolatry? Sure, send them to Assyria, the land of idols, and they'll, they'll get cured of it. But the first step is to destroy their idols, to make them realize through some catastrophe in their life what you are worshiping is not real. It's a folly. It can't protect you, and you need protecting in this world so that they would turn back to Him. He went on further and said, I will rise with a sword against the house of uh, uh, Jeroboam's. And so the judgment that would come not only upon their places of worship, but also come upon uh, the, the, the royal household uh, as a result. And then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel. So here is a priest who is the priest at the city of Bethel, which is one of the two headquarters of the calf worship. they got these big giant golden calves that they're worshiping, God's people. And, and he is uh, the priest at Bethel. He's invested in, in the idolatry, the apostasy, of his own people. And, uh, and so he's been listening here, as the, the nation has been, to Amos for a while. And he sent to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, and he said to the king, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. Oh, there's nothing new under the sun here. This is what we call today fake news. And uh, that's a relatively new term, but I, I have a hunch it's not going away. Uh, it is a permanent part of our vocabulary uh, until the news outlets uh, earn a, uh, the right to have that buried. But the distrust is not a, a bad distrust, but this is a, a, a terrible thing that he does here. He comes to Amos, he comes to Jeroboam the king concerning Amos, and he says, he's conspired against you. And what he does is, rather than framing the ministry of Amos in terms of spiritual issues, that Amos is out there saying, we're very far from God, and we need to repent, and we need to get back to God, or we're going to be chastened by him. Now he says, he's out there uh, committing treason. He's out there undermining the political system of the nation. And that's not what Amos was aiming at at all. So he, he mischaracterizes him and, and uh, misframes his argument all uh, together. So he's deflecting. If he comes in and says, listen, Amos is you know, saying all these things on behalf of God about the religious system that we've made up and all of this, well, he's a priest completely invested in the system. He doesn't want that to be uh, damaged in, 
uh, in any way or threatened. And so he comes to Jeroboam, misrepresents the, the ministry of uh, Amos. He's conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel, and uh, the land uh, is not able to bear his words. He is, he is uh, uh, deflating, he's demoralizing uh, the country with his message. And then he says, For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall be led away captive from their own land. Now, this is an a, a absolute um, uh, misquoting of what it is that Amos has been ministering. There's a vast difference between verse 9 and verse 10 when God says uh, through Amos, I will rise up with a sword against the house uh, of Jeroboam and then saying that Jeroboam will die uh, by the sword. God never said that Jeroboam would die by the sword. Jeroboam will survive this and he will ultimately die a natural death. He won't survive in Israel but he will survive what happens uh, here. So a, he, he makes this thing now. This guy is out there, and he's a personal threat to you, Jeroboam. And uh, it, it's just one of the things that ha- happens. I've been a pastor for a lot of years now. And so somewhere along the line, you know how to, you learn to talk. Uh, you learn how to frame an argument. Uh, you know how to present a truth um, in, its, in its best light in terms of, of for people to understand it and get a hold of it. But you can learn how to become very, very political. You can learn how to say, uh, 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 pretend to say something and you're saying nothing. And you can learn how to misrepresent when it appears you're uh, representing something. It's, it's an awful curse that, that, can, that can happen. And, and you can learn how to do what politicians, not all of them, but so many of them do, and they twist everything for their purposes. And that's what they're doing with the ministry of Amos. And then, Amos, uh, and then Amaziah said to Amos, and here's his threat to him, go, you seer, uh, flee the land uh, of Judah, there eat bread, and there prophesy, and never again prophesy at Bethel, for this is the king's sanctuary, and it is a royal residence. And so when he says, go, you uh, prophet, uh, flee to the land of Judah, uh, he is saying, get out of here, you foreigner. How dare you come up from Judah and uh, speak for God in the northern kingdom uh, of Israel. We've got enough priests and enough prophets up here. We don't need someone coming. And, and, and here he's, he's, he's casting a, um, a suspicion on him by virtue of being a foreigner, so to speak. But I hope all of us w- would be willing to hear God's voice through any person that God would send our way and choose to use, as he did with Amos. When he said, uh, flee back to the land of Judah and there eat bread, he is accusing uh, Amos of being a prophet for bread. He's in it for the money. And so you couldn't make a living being a prophet down in Judah, so you've come up here uh, just to put uh, bread on the table. Why would he think that? You know, the suspicions that we have, the judgments that we cast upon other people, are so often a reflection of what exists in our own heart. Why would he think that Amos was in the prophet business or calling because he was in it for the money except he was in the prophet business or the high priest business for money? And he knew it was a lucrative way to make a living. It's a way to put food on the table. And so he takes and he imposes the darkness of his own heart and his own motivations uh, upon upon Amos, and he tells him to never again prophesy in Bethel. Well, Amos, he uh, listens to this, and he has an answer for it. And he said to Amaziah, I was no prophet. Uh, you uh, uh, call me, uh, 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 charge me of being a self-appointed prophet. I, am, I, I was never a prophet. 
And uh, I don't come from a line of prophets in terms of, of my family as he uh, uh, speaks here related to this. I, nor was I a son of a prophet. But I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit, a fig picker. He had two ways of making a living. He breeded sheep, and, and, he, and, and he was a tender of sycamore, sycamore uh, fruit, and I was making a fine living, by the way. I never came up here in order to make money off of, uh, of what uh, God has called me to do. And then he gives the, re- the reason why he's up there. Then God took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. You think your problem is with me. You don't even know what kind of deep water you're in. If you you think this is just me talking to you, and I'm your biggest problem, you're not getting anything. Your big problem is the person who sent me to deliver these messages to you, which anyone can recognize are true. And... uh, And so he said, no, God has sent me to to prophesy to you, and now therefore hear the word uh, of the Lord. Uh, You say, do not prophesy against Israel, and do not spout uh, against the house of uh, Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, uh, your wife shall be a harlot in the city, again, speaking of the devastation and the horrible consequences of uh, the, the Assyrian invasion ultimately as a part of God's chastening on them. Uh, your wife shall be a harlot in the city. People, of course, would be taken captive. She would no longer be um, the wife of a priest. Uh, go around in the circles that she was used to being in, the upper echelon of things, everybody knowing her name, all of the finest clothes, all of the finest makeups or whatever it might be, that when this, thing's hit, this thing hits, because you will not take this seriously, Amaziah, you will go into captivity, but your wife will be left in this city to earn a living the only way that so many women earn a living after a destruction like that, and that is becoming a harlot on the street. And your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. They're going to die in this invasion. Your land, talking about his personal land, uh, is going to be divided up by survey line, is going to be given away to other people, and you shall die in a defiled uh, land. In other words, you will go to Assyria, you will die there, and for the rest of your born days, you will have to remember this conversation that we've had. And you will have to remember the part you played as a priest in Bethel in the destruction, not only of the nation, but of your own family. And Israel shall surely be led away captive from uh, his own land. Wow. That takes courage. That takes courage. So we read a book like this, and we're most focused upon the message that God is speaking and how it applies to our lives. But then to look at what is to be learned about Amos. What is to be learned about what it takes to stand as a Christian in the midst of an environment that is so pagan and so far away from God, and this is even talking about the Philistines or the Moabites or the Edomites. It's talking about people who think they are God's people. And we realize that in order to stand, as, as Amos does here, it required great courage, and it required a sanctified boldness. Now, when I say a sanctified boldness, it means that we live within this culture and we speak against the sin within this culture individually or from a pulpit or whatever it might be, but not with glee in our heart, 
but we confront that the problems within the nation or within the world are spiritual. They are not political. They are not economic at their core. And, but it comes out of the heart of someone who can pray like Amos prays. It's not someone who is eager to see God fry all of these people. That's not the kind of boldness I'm talking about. But the, in the northern kingdom of Israel, and in our nation, and in our entire world, the devil has become very, very bold, in case you haven't noticed. And I know you have noticed. And that kind of boldness has to be met with a sanctified boldness and a courage to stop and to say, this is what God says in, in, in the midst of that great apostasy. And not only is it important for the world to know what God has to say, and not to believe that there's 97 different sexes when there's only two, but to stand bold for God's truth for our own sake in the midst of the seductiveness and the, and the pressure of that kind of an environment. And so you look at the pressure of our culture today in the United States, I mean, to, to stand up against the onslaught of what it is that's this experiment that's being foisted upon us, uh, to, you, you can start to feel like you're a crazy person or an oddball. The whole world seems to be uh, buying into this, uh, to this thing. And to always remember, whatever it looks like at the moment, God's Word is always going to have the final say. It will always have the final say. Did the northern kingdom of Israel fall to the Assyrians? Yes, they did. And, and, and the fulfillment of a prophecy. And every prophecy that God gives in His Word, it will be fulfilled. The, th- the thing of it is, is that for us as Christians, because we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we have God's Word, we have history in advance through the Word of God, we see everything. We see the implications of everything, especially on a moral and a spiritual sense, way before the culture does. And so, because we see these things so early, and we begin to speak up so early, we look like the nutcases. But you just wait. You just wait. Because ultimately, as time goes on, it will always roll exactly where God says uh, things are and where they need to be and what the solutions to man's problems are, which is supremely to come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, and then He tends to take care of everything else. And, and, uh, but here we see this, this boldness to stand. And I, I don't think, in this culture, if we don't have a boldness and courage that comes from God, we'll get run over. And it's beautiful here with Amos. He will not allow himself to be run over. Not by Amaziah, and not by what's happening in the northern kingdom of, of uh, uh, um, uh, the, the northern kingdom of Israel. Chapter 8, the next vision of of the basket of summer fruit. And thus the Lord uh, God showed me, and behold, the basket of summer fruit. Summer fruit is fruit that is ripe. They didn't pick um, fruit uh, two weeks early in order to allow time for it to get to the grocer and then ripen. When you picked fruit in the ancient world, it was ripe. And uh, so here's a basket of summer fruit fully right. And the Lord said, Amos, what do you see? And so I said, a basket of summer uh, fruit. And uh, the Lord said to me, the end has come upon the people of Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. I've given space to repent. They haven't heeded it. And now I'm going to come in on the judgment. And so uh, summer fruit is a fruit that is fully ripe. And the imagery is they're ripe for judgment. 
And uh, if, if it goes on any longer, then it's just going to become uh, rottenness. And, uh, and so the end has come. They're ripe for judgment. I'm going to judge them. And the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day, says the Lord. Many dead bodies everywhere. They shall be thrown out in silence. And as you might imagine, for instance, in Bethel, when the Assyrians came in, what would people do? They would do what they've done through history, and that is they would run to the temple of their God and cry out to their God to save them in, in, in that uh, close proximity to the space that's set aside uh, to that God. And God says uh, people are going to die right in the t these idolatrous temples and there's going to be so many dead bodies that not, only, uh, that not only will no one be buried uh, because there won't be enough people left to bury them, uh, but the, the most they can hope for is that their bodies will be thrown out in silence. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and, and make the poor of the land fail. And now he goes back to remind them and us of why this judgment was going to come upon them as they claimed to be God's people, the God of the Bible, and yet they were doing this. They were swallowing up uh, the needy, their abuse of, uh, of the poor, their uh, oppression uh, of, of the poor and of uh, the powerless. And so the rich were oppressing them, the poor, until the poor had no hope of ever escaping from their poverty. Now, that kind of thing can happen in the world um, because of decisions that people that are in poverty make related to their own life. It can happen because a country is poverty-stricken itself, and so everyone is poverty-stricken. But woe to the nation or the leaders who set up a system in which the poor can never get ahead. They can never get out from under their poverty. They're never given a chance. And their powerlessness and their weakness and their vulnerability is used by those who have the reins of power and of riches and make sure in that corruption that the poor will never be out from under their heel. God, and I speak about it every time because this is just such an affront to God and, and an affront to our own hearts that anyone could think, I have the freedom or the right to, as a mere human being, to do that to even one other human being, let alone a nation of human beings, so that I can go from middle class to upper middle class or from upper middle class into the wealthy. And there's nothing wrong with being upper middle class and nothing wrong with being rich, despite the divisions that are trying to be made today in our nation related to it. Fix the taxes, whatever the nation wants to do or the people agree to. There's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong with that is then taking that and using it so that uh, uh, to set up a system that no one else can prevail in the way that, that I have prevailed. And so the Lord uh, uh, said, uh, when will the new moon be passed? The people in Israel were saying that we may sell grain again in the Sabbath, that we may uh, trade wheat. So they, uh, the one day of the week that they were supposed to give to God, the Saturday, they were begrudging that now. So six days they had to do whatever they wanted to do with their six days, and then they went to the temple or they went to synagogue, and they were doing this, uh, worshiping the golden calves, and they worked a little bit of the Lord in it at the same time. And so they were, um, uh, they were begrudging. Uh, the, what are we doing in this temple? What are we doing giving a day uh, to God when there's an, uh, and we're missing out on a, a perfectly good day to make money? And the six days weren't enough in their greed. They, they wanted the seventh day. I remember when everything was closed on Sunday, but I'm old. And, uh, but there was that kind of respect for the day. And then what happened? Somebody said, we're missing out on a great day to make money. And then the consumer said, 
We're missing out on a great day to buy a bunch of stuff. And then here it is, 24-7. And so that, that was the attitude. They made the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying uh, the scales by deceit that we may uh, buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad weed. And so they, they had one set of scales for buying, what a scale, scales for selling, and they were uh, ripping people off. Imagine being at a meat counter, and, and, you, and you, you've got somebody that's just trying to put food in, in the mouths of his children that day, and you pull those scales out, and you shaft them like that way. I, don't, I mean, how do you even live with yourself? And yet that's, that's what they were doing. And then when people uh, didn't have any money to buy f uh, their food, they sold themselves and then as slaves, and then they sold, they sold the people that they got in this way for sandals and, and, and for silver. And they even sold the bad wheat. To who? Their peers? No, 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 no. There was wheat that goes bad, and in the shops, they would say, this is too bad, we can't sell it. And they decided, what do you mean? We could make a little bit off this. What should we do? We'll sell it to the poor. They won't have any other choice. And God watched all of it. And the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. Shall the land not tremble? Uh, talking about the shaking of the land with a coming invasion, maybe an earthquake. And everyone uh, mourn who dwells in it. All of it shall swell like uh, the river, heave and subside like the river of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight, probably talking about the fires associated with the invasion of the Assyrians being so great that it darkened the sunlight. I will turn your feasts into mourning, and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son, and its end will be like a bitter day. And he talks about mourning like the, for the death of an only son. And, and this was more than the death. So here you have the death of an only child. But the fact that that child was also a son meant that the mourning would be greater because it would mean the extinguishing of the family name in Jewish history. And so that was the, the, uh, the, the great, uh, uh, the highest kind of ex way of, of, of communicating uh, a, a, the greatest kind of mourning that people would feel in that culture. And behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a famine of water, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. And that's amazing, isn't it? He knows that once things really hit for them, now they would be interested in what does God say? What does God say to us as a nation? What does God say to me as an individual? And, and God said, one day they're going to want to hear my voice more than they want water, more than they want bread. And you know how much we need water and we need bread. And, and he says, they will go from city to city. Imagine traveling from one city to the other in the northern kingdom of Israel in the hopes that someone is speaking God's Word so they can hear God's Word, what they had dismissed for so long, and God said, you won't find it. It is a privilege to hear the Word of God. It is a privilege to own a Bible. It is a privilege to have the Word of God. It is a marvel that He speaks to us. I mean, imagine what they're doing. Here's God speaking. He's pouring His heart out uh, to them. And uh, it would be like, let's say you're talking to somebody at some kind of a gathering, and right in the middle of you talking to them, they turn on their heel and they walk away. <laughs> You'll never hear from me again. 
I mean, fool me once. And, and uh, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And, and, and imagine, though, mankind turning and ignoring God's Word, what that must be looked at like uh, as from the vantage point of, of heaven. And, and so he said, all right, you don't listen, want to listen to my Word? He said, I'll give you uh, something that is far worse when the time of trouble comes. And what I'll give you is silence. I won't talk to you. And that would ultimately happen uh, in their history. And in that day, the fair virgins and the strong young men talking about uh, men and women in the prime of life, they shall faint from thirst. And those who swear by their sin uh, of Samaria, who say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, uh, they shall fall and never rise again. And so God uh, speaks here about the, uh, the, uh, the end of an entire generation of, of God's people in this, uh, this, this destruction and the sins that are visited so often of the fathers and their decisions upon the children and the younger generation. Chapter 9. And here is the next uh, vision of the Lord uh, standing by the altar uh, in, uh, in the, the temple there, uh, uh, false temple in, in uh, Bethel in, in the northern king of Israel. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, strike the doorposts that the thresholds may uh, shake. In other words, start to break the, the, the shake up the foundation, the, 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 the pillars and these things that are holding the building uh, together, and break them on the heads of, uh, of them all. Again, people trying to find refuge there within the temple. I will slay the, uh, the last of them with the sword. He who flees from them shall uh, not get away from the Assyrians, and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. And so God says, when I pour my judgment out, my judgment will be inescapable. And then here is Amos, just a little old fig picker and a sheep breeder. And he, and he, in this graphic kind of poetic language, he describes how inescapable God's judgment is. Though they dig into hell, from there my hand will take them. If they, if they dug a hole that reached all the way down into Hades and got down in it, I would still reach them with my judgment. Though they climb up into heaven, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves uh, on top of uh, Carmel, Mount Carmel, lots of forests, lots of caves for hiding in that area, from there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent, and he shall bite them. Though they go into captivity before their uh, enemies, from there I will command the sword, and it shall slay them. I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. God's saying, my judgment will be inescapable when I, I pour it out. And again, thinking about how this is a last resort for God. He, he wanted to bless these people, but they have forced Him into this place. He longed to do them good, but they're forcing Him to chasten them. And the Lord God of hosts who touches uh, the earth and it melts. I don't know the last time you went outside and did any gardening and the earth melted? Probably not. And we're thankful for that. So he's talking about He's reminding them of who they're up against. They're not up against Amos. They're up against God. And if you're up against God, you're up against uh, someone that you can't win uh, in a fight against because he's, he's sovereign. Uh, he is almighty. He is uh, omnipotent and, uh, and uh, absolutely irresistible. And so here's the Lord of hosts. He touches the earth, it melts, and all who dwell there mourn, and it shall be like the river and subside like the river of Egypt. He who builds the layers in the sky, he has put all of the different levels of the first seven heaven, the second and the third heaven. He has founded his strata uh, in the earth, and he calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. In other words, you have no hope of, 
of, of fighting against God and winning. You are like, uh, are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me? God is saying to them, you, are, uh, you have forfeited any kind of special place in my eyes uh, as descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, you have so um, violated uh, the covenant that I have uh, made with them and with their descendants, but you don't represent uh, 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 descendants of, of those patriarchs. O oh God, uh, children of Israel, says the Lord, did I not bring up Egypt from the land uh, of Is uh, the land of Israel, up from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Kaphtor, and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. And and yet we shouldn't look at it and say, okay, God brought a judgment upon the northern kingdom of Israel, upon the Jews, and now He's through with the Jews today. There's a lot of Christians that believe that, but I don't know how you can believe it in, in the light of, of what uh, the Bible teaches r related to them. He goes on there in verse 8 and says, yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. There will be a remnant. There's always a remnant uh, a godly remnant, even within uh, the judgment of God. There were godly people that were in the midst of, uh, of Israel at that, uh, at that time, but so badly outnumbered that, that they were virtually uh, powerless and insignificant in and of themselves there. For surely I will command and I will sift the house of Israel among the nations as grain is sifted in a sieve, and yet uh, not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. Poetic language for, for that time that they would have understood. So they would take the grain and they would put it on a, a, a sieve and a kind of a, a, a net or a, a, a metal or something, and they would shake it so the grain would stay up above, but all of the waste and the chaff would fall down. And so God says, I'm going to shake this nation and... Um, but I'm not going to lose sight of one single of my people. I know it's incorrect English. Not one of my people in the midst of this mess. I, I will identify the remnant that is in the middle of this, and I will look after them uh, in, in this uh, judgment and, and, uh, as he uh, declares there. Not even one of them is going to fall uh, to the ground. And so here we see that it's important no matter how, um, no matter how uh, apostate a culture becomes, no matter how sinful a culture becomes, even people who claim to represent God, it is still significant and meaningful to make a stand in the midst of that. You say, nobody even knows. Nobody even cares. I mean, the place is so gone that nobody even cares about a Christian or me living or uh, living for God. Nobody listens to me anymore. It matters to God. And it'll matter to you as well when chastening is, is poured out. And, and so he notices, uh, notices that uh, even when there's no appreciation for our faithfulness to God in the midst of the nation or the culture that we might be living in. All uh, the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. So they're in a bit of positive confession here and uh, hearing all of these positive messages uh, and uh, when the message they should have been listening to was the one that Amos spoke to them. And then God, because He loves to end on, on a happy ending, and He's always working to an, a happy ending, and that is their repentance. And uh, so He speaks here in the final section of this chapter a, uh, of the future restoration of Israel after the judgment. And on that day I will raise up the tabernacle uh, of David which has fallen down. Uh, there has been no king that has... Uh, been alive to carry on the Davidic dynasty since the southern kingdom of Israel was taken, uh, of Judah was taken captive by the Babylonians. There's a gap. And God said, I'm going to restore the Davidic dynasty again one day. That hasn't happened yet. 
And how it will happen is in the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus at His second uh, coming. And so here he's talking about the day that Messiah will come back, the first time he's already come, but here they'll recognize him, the Jewish people, uh, at that time, and, and then uh, continue the Davidic dynasty and repair its damages, the spiritual condition of the Jewish people. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old and they shall possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. And when Jesus comes back at His second coming, He establishes His uh, millennial kingdom, thousand-year reign of Christ. He is going to rule the world uh, from uh, Jerusalem and the borders of, uh, of Israel will take on the borders that are found within the Bible, reaching beyond, uh, way beyond the current borders of Israel today into Edom, for example, as, as Amos uh, lists here. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. And again, this very much looks forward to the kingdom age, the second coming of Jesus. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. Imagine a farmer going out to plow his, his uh, field, and the reapers have, aren't done reaping the crop from the previous year. Now, that's abundance. That, you don't know where to put that much food. And, uh, and the treader of grapes, uh, 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 him who sows the seed. And the mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all of the hills will flow with it. And I will bring back the captives of my people. They shall uh, build the waste places, uh, the waste cities, and inhabit them. Uh, and again, the near fulfillment would be the return of the Jews back into the land of Israel following the Babylonian captivity. But that's a partial fulfillment. Here is the far and full fulfillment will be when Jesus comes back following the devastation of the land, this devastation of the Jewish people under the Antichrist during the tribulation uh, period. These cities will have been laid waste, but the Jewish people will then build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them, and they shall also make gardens and eat from them and I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up for the, uh, from the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. And so we finish that, and we'll pick up Obadiah, uh, God willing, next time uh, we come uh, together. So we close, and we look at, um, we look at Amos, and again, as, as an example for living for God in the midst of great apostasy, great challenge, great unholiness, great um, wickedness, great oppression. And we see a man who was faithful to not only deliver God's Word, but he was faithful to live God's Word. He was faithful to God's calling upon his life. Staying faithful to what God has called us to will keep us out of all kinds of trouble. Idle hands and idle minds are still the devil's uh, workshop. And uh, he was uncompromising, he was bold, he was courageous. All of these things that are, have always been required of God's people, but especially required during times in which the world looks like what uh, uh, looked like the northern kingdom of Israel uh, immediately before its judgment. And so, uh, a beautiful, beautiful lesson in him, the little old fig picker, uh, just minding in his own business. God called him to do this, and he was faithful to do it. And uh, as unto the Lord, nobody really listened to him, uh, but uh, it was enough that God was able to warn through him, and uh, his reward is great, uh, uh, great for it. Let's stand together now, and we'll close in prayer. Father, we pray that you would um, give us a, a courage, that you would give us a boldness, and that would be a sanctified boldness in a world in which the devil has become so bold, um, so bold that even uh, the most illogical thing, the most, the, what would have been considered an insanity 
10 or 20 years ago is now being uh, bought and, and taken hook, line, and sinker. And just the moral and spiritual chaos that is going on around us. And we pray that you would give us a, a, a strength and a courage to stand in the midst of all of this and to be faithful to your word, faithful to your calling, to be faithful knowing that your word will have the final say in every nation, in every situation, in every definition of right and wrong, and in human history. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us in this way. And then, Lord, we pray that you would give us in all of this so we don't repay evil for evil, so we don't come on to the level of the world around us. We pray that you would give us a gentle heart from which we speak from, a heart that is broken and looks like yours, a heart that is willing to pray even for those that are so um, warranting your judgment in their uh, wickedness and in their defilement. And so continue to fashion us in the same way that you fashioned Amos for his hour in human history. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.